welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and it's so good to be with you today. We have been working through the true character of a Christian in our time in the Sermon on the Mount series. So we talked about when a man is truly poor in spirit, when he's recognizing his bankruptcy before God, meek, pure, desiring righteousness, and a peacemaker, he's going to be salt and light for Jesus to a lost world around him. So now as we're turning to this next section of the sermon, we begin to see that the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees to avoid murder meant that they were keeping the sixth commandment, but Jesus lays out to them that they've broken this commandment when they've been angry with another person or called them a fool. So we're going to see again that as James Montgomery Boy stated, that true Christian morality must arise from the heart. And as a result of this, no one but God who controls the heart can provide it. So we are going to be digging in today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And we are talking about the sin of anger today. So let me start by reading these verses. So I'm going to start there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. As always, I'm reading from the ESV. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the taking of the life of another person in the image of God through murder reminds us that we live in a sin-filled world that deems others as worthless. We see how our society views the sin of abortion as, as legal. They see that it's, they see, or in their minds, they believe it's okay to kill a baby in the womb. We know that murderers when caught will face judgment in the courts and they will stand before the capital J judge of the universe, whether they are caught or not, that's going, that's going to happen. But we are we always mindful as we think of our sinful anger that even though it doesn't lead to murder outwardly, is committing murder against another person in our heart and is also going to be judged by the Lord. So the reminder is that whether or not that anger is expressed outwardly or just in our thoughts, it's still going to be judged by the Lord. So these verses in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 begin with the first of Jesus's you have heard that it was said statements. So Jesus is referring here to the Old Testament, and he's not contradicting the teachings of the Old Testament in any way. Jesus is giving us here, as Sinclair Ferguson has called it, a thorough heart-searching exposition of it. 
Mr. Ferguson also shared on this thinking. He said, the real contrast in this section is between the meaning of the law according to Jesus and the meaning of the law according to the religious tradition and the ancient teachers, end quote there. So Jesus didn't start here. Did you notice with this section, it is written, he begins here with, you heard that it was said. It seems he's referring to not to the text of, of scripture, but to the traditional teaching of the rabbis. So in Matthew's gospel, it is clearly being laid out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Exodus. This was kind of interesting when I came across this. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that Jesus was called out of Egypt, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then Matthew chapter 3, just moving the next chapter there, verses 13 to 17, it tells us about Jesus' baptism there, how he passed through the waters in his baptism. And then Matthew chapter 4, we come to his time of his testing in the wilderness. And now, as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is expounding on God's law on a mountain. And we know from our last time together in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, that Jesus is not, and that would have been episode 112, the one right before this literally, that Jesus is not replacing or displacing the teaching of God. Um, I'm going to say that again, that Jesus is not replacing or displacing the teaching of God through Moses, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's teachings. So the first of these six teachings that we're coming to, you heard that it was, you heard that Jesus was going to say, you heard that it was said, is on murder. But he's talking about murder without a physical weapon here. So if you were thinking, okay, what does murder have to do with me, Marcy? I've never murdered anyone. We're we're going to see how this text today is foundational to all our human relationships. So please stick with me. This section and these next sections we work through over the next months are digging into our heart attitudes. And my hope is we will listen and work through them with a mirror to our own hearts and attitudes and ask the Lord to reveal the sin in our hearts, okay? going to see in these next sections together what righteousness looks like that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And these teachings of Jesus are going to lay out what this righteousness, and I say that as we are living it out in the power of the Spirit, but what this righteousness looks like so that it glorifies our Heavenly Father. A great question to ask yourself as we are going to begin here. It's a long intro, I'm sorry. As we are going to begin here to tear about this text, or to tear apart this text is, Are my attitudes and actions revealing to others a proper opinion of who I am claiming my Heavenly Father to be? And when I'm saying that, I don't just mean those in your church family or outside that you meet, but what about the people in your own home? What about your children and your husband, those closest to you? So are your attitudes and actions and how you respond to them revealing to them a proper opinion of who you are claiming your Heavenly Father to be? So let's dig into the text. So I'm going to start here with Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, and I'm going to read it again just to have it fresh in our memory here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So the term for murder here, it means to kill a man unjustly, and it refers, it refers to premeditated, deliberate, intentional murder. We're not talking about accidental killing. 
Webster's Dictionary of 1828 defines murder as the act of unlawfully killing a human being with premeditated malice by a person of sound mind. Um, it talked about it also, Southern, that definition that to constitute murder in law, the person killing another must be of sound mind or in possession of his reason, and the act must be done with intentional malice or premeditated. So murder begins first off, really with the sinful attitude of anger. Jesus is telling us here that anger without a cause is sinful and it needs to be remedied. We're not talking about unrighteous, we're not talking about righteous anger here. We're talking about unrighteous anger. I'm going to touch a bit on righteous anger, but right here I am talking about sinful, unrighteous anger. The term here for the word liable there in verse 21 is Inakos, it's spelled E-N-O-C-H-O-S in the Greek, and it means guilty of having done wrong and thus deserving a particular penalty. It's primarily a legal term. It's, it's liable to a charge or action in law or in court. So we see in those verses that I just read in 21 and 22 that the, of the progression, did you notice that, of the different courts before which the accused must stand and plead his cause. So the courts go from the court of judgment to the council, and the council would kind of be like our Supreme Court, to hell, to the highest court of judgment. So our Father, our Heavenly Father, he's concerned with our hearts, and he is just as concerned with unrighteous anger as he is the actual shedding of blood of another human being. So not only is Jesus telling us here that it is murder of the heart to be angry at another, but the term here for insult is raka, and it's an Aramaic term meaning empty-headed. So the idea is that of is like an empty head, an airhead, or a numbskull, or one who thinks like a donkey. So in that sense, raka expresses dehumanizing contempt, which seeks to strip the person of their dignity by viewing them as worthless. So if you are saying the term raka to someone, you are saying, you idiot. You fool, in that text there, is the Greek word moros. Um, You're probably already picking this one up. It conveys the root meaning of one who is mentally dull, sluggish in understanding, foolish, morally worthless, silly or stupid, or the English word we would use is moron. There are a number of synonyms, including blockhead, bonehead, dimwit, dork, numbskull, and the list can go on and on. With either of these terms... They are terms of reproach. It's looking at others as a nothing, a nobody, a moron, or empty-headed. You are attacking someone's self-worth and dignity. You're attacking their character. So if you've ever thought ill or poorly of anyone or called them a name like an idiot or a moron or stupid, even in your thoughts, I, I mean, I can go on here. You've attacked their dignity and looked down upon someone created in the image of God. When we've done this, you and I have sinned. John writes that in 1 John 2, 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John three fifteen states, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4.20 states, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. One commentator stated, We would learn that we actually do worse things than these if we could only see our hearts as God is able to see them. That's a pretty scary thought there, right? We always like to think a little better of ourselves than we really are. We are all murderers. 
Have you ever lost your temper? Have you ever harbored a grudge against someone? Gossiped? Neglected their needs? Tore them apart in your thoughts? Been jealous? We can destroy others in our thoughts and with our words. And as those people who are professing to be known and loved by Jesus, this should not be. One area I want to address as we're talking about anger is what is righteous anger? Because listen, we are always trying to justify our sin. And with the sin of anger, it's easy to fall into calling it righteous anger. This is a very quick overview, but I think you're going to find it helpful. So the the characteristics that I'm going to walk through were from just a helpful resource to me as I was working through this. And it's one I highly recommend if you struggle with anger. It's by Robert Jones called Uprooting Anger. And I'm going to make sure in this post to put some other helpful books on anger in the show notes too. So I'll I'll fill those up with other some other helpful resources. So first off, he states, Righteous anger will react against actual sin. It isn't getting angry because I didn't get my way or my desires weren't met. Okay, second, it's motivated by Godward and biblically informed concerns. So instead of just seeing how I was offended, it's going to go first to how was God offended? Um, the author Jones, he stated it as righteous anger throbs with kingdom concerns. And then third, he said, true and righteous anger will seek out what actual sin is. And again, it's not focused on a personal offense as much as a Godward offense. And that anger will then be expressed in a way that is consistent with Christian character. This is key here. Righteous anger doesn't fly off the handle. It is controlled. It is not going to swear or belittle others or name call or rant. It's not going to fall into self-pity or despair. There's no blowing off the handle here or slamming doors. Righteous anger is controlled and it is moving towards good and specific ends. Um, Jones, I'm going to put a quote here from him. He said, godly strains of mourning, comfort, joy, praise, and action balance it, end quote there. So friends, we are rarely, if ever, (laughs) trying to think it through myself, if I've ever truly expressed righteous anger in a non-sinful way. I don't know. But we are rarely expressing righteous anger when we are angry. The next time you are sensing anger welling up inside you, do a heart check. Are you more concerned in that moment with the offense against God or against yourself? Are you expressing your anger in a God-honoring way that is consistent with Christian character? Anger is a serious sin in the kingdom of God. Our tongues get us into so much trouble. The words of James ring here so true, right? Where he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So the words we use are a revealing of our true spiritual condition, whether we express them outward or they are inward in our thoughts. Sinclair Ferguson stated, he said, Jesus recognized that we cannot be trusted in our judgment of the seriousness of careless speech. We treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. He uses language we readily understand. Anger incurs judgment. Using terms of contempt like raka, like we talked about, he's is worthy of condemnation by the highest court, right? That was the court of hell. Calling someone a fool fits us for hell. Jesus is probably not placing these sins on a scale of seriousness in the kingdom of God. 
He's simply stressing vividly that they are far more serious than most of us assume. In fact, our insensitivity to their real seriousness is indicative of the dullness of our spiritual senses, end quote there from him. So I don't know about you, but I don't want my spiritual senses to be dull. I want the prayer of Psalm 139, 23, and 24 to be on my heart continually. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, our prayer needs to be for God to search our hearts and make sure our love and our hatred are what they ought to be. Do they reflect Christ in us? So as we keep moving down in this text, as we look at Matthew um, chapter 5, verses 23 to 26 now, it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Sinclair Ferguson stated on this text, he was kind of my guy this time. I really appreciated his work on the Sermon on the Mount and for this particular text. But he said, he said, picture a man in church. He's about to express his devotion to the Lord in worship and in his offering, but he has not been enjoying fellowship with his brother. There's disharmony in the relationship. Jesus says the man should leave his offering, be reconciled to his brother, and then return to worship God with a clear conscience and a full heart. So he continues, he says, is Jesus saying that the only important thing in worship is right relationships with our fellow men? Hardly. He recognizes that our relationship with God is primary, but we always appear before God as those who are related rightly or wrongly to our fellow men. What we are before God involves how we are related to others. And if we are at enmity with others, how can we come into the Lord's presence with clean hands and a pure heart? It is monstrous to think that he will find our hypocritical offering acceptable. Obedience is better than sacrifice. He's referencing 1 Samuel 15, 22 there. As Peter shows us, this principle extends to the home and family. Husbands are to treat their wives with respect and as heirs of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder their prayers. That's 1 Peter 3, 7. The principle is clear. Right relationships with others are part of the meaning of the commandment not to murder. They are essential if our righteousness is to go down deeper than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, end quote there. So what is the cure for anger? Well, first, it's admitting that we do get angry. We need to acknowledge our sin in this area. We can too easily tend to cover up our sin or excuse it or justify it. We need to acknowledge our sinful anger before the Lord. And the next step is what we just discussed in Sinclair Ferguson's commentary. We are to correct the injustice. If we need to make things right with another brother or sister in the faith, we need to drop everything and do this. Maybe we need to deal with our thoughts before the Lord about another person. Maybe we've not shown or spoken ill or angrily directly or outwardly to them, right? But in our inward thoughts, and we still need to seek the Lord to correct our sinful thinking. Psalm 66, 18 tells us, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Listen, friend, we're not going to relate rightly to the other person if we're not thinking rightly of them. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I think I can say again that we all know something about this tendency not to face directly the conviction which the Holy Spirit produces in our heart, but to say to ourselves, well, now I'm doing this and that. I'm making great sacrifices at this point. I'm being helpful in that matter. I'm 
busily engaged in that piece of Christian work. The whole time, though, we are not facing the jealousy we may feel against another Christian worker or something in our personal private life. We are balancing one thing with another, thinking this good will make up for that evil. So we can find it so much easier. And and I'm stating this because it's coming from my own life at times, Sally, to attend the prayer meeting or Bible study or serve in the church or give our tithes and offerings all the while being angry or thinking ill of a fellow brother or sister in the faith. And the things I mentioned, those are good things, right? And we should do them. But God tells us that they are worthless if we are harboring unconfessed sin in our lives. We need to get right with the Lord, and then we need to get right with others. 1 John 3, 18 through 20 tells us, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So friend, whatever that is, we need to confess our sin of anger and make it right with the Lord and others. And last is, we are to do it immediately. And this next part of our text makes that clear. Leave our gift at the altar and first go be reconciled with your brother. So we don't want to put it off. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And Hebrews 12.14-15 states, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. In referring here to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, this devotional writer, Shannon Woodward, relates this recent experience in a bookstore. Um, They state, a little boy came running into the store. I really like this story, so take a quick listen here because this is kind of convicting to all of us. So a little boy came running into the store and rushed up to his father who was calmly browsing the children's books. The boy had a request to make, but before he could finish, his father exploded and angrily told him to go back to the family van. A few minutes later, an older girl came into the store and tried to talk to the father, but in a voice that turned every head in the store, he screamed at her to go outside and stay put. As the girl left, red-faced, the man calmly resumed his browsing. Woodward watched sadly, amazed at the way this father erupted with anger and then browsed as if nothing happened. Such scenes are painful to witness, yet if we are honest with ourselves, we would admit that this is often the way we approach our worship of God. We may come into God's presence ready to worship Him, yet we come knowing that things are not right, quote, outside, where family or friends are feeling the effects of our disrupted relationships with them. God wants us to remove this hindrance before we bring him our praise and our gifts, a necessary step of preparation for worship that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Applying this to our worship, Jesus turned the situation around from what we might expect. The problem here is not what others have done to offend us, but what we might have done to cause offense to a brother or sister. Why did Jesus state the cause this way? And he, the, the, she, I'm gonna, I don't know if it's a he or she, it's Shannon, and I didn't, get a, I didn't get a he or she name on this, but I really just love this story. She says, probably because we are a lot quicker to forget our own offenses than we are to forget the offenses other people commit against us. That's so true, huh? And she states where the altar Jesus was talking about from verse 23 was located in the inner portion of the temple where solemn worship took place. Let me read that sentence again. Probably because we are a lot quicker to forget our own offenses then we are to forget the offenses other people commit against us. 
Susan Huck convictingly stated, she said, I know of marital relationships. Now, I know she's a woman because I know who she is. But Susan Huck stated, I know of marital relationships where there is feuding all week long, and yet they put on their religious face for Sundays and think they're worshiping God. I know of women who are at odds with others or even avoid others at church or don't care for a certain person in the church, and yet they think they come on Sunday to worship. She continues, she says, my friend, if this describes you, then worship is far from what you are doing on the Lord's day. Hypocrisy would be a better description because that's what Jesus says it is, end quote there. So my friend, if there's a dullness or dryness in your walk with the Lord, and perhaps it's because you have unconfessed sin and you need to make things right before the Lord and another believer, if the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind an area that needs tended to, do it immediately. Be sensitive to his work in your heart and mind. There is urgency in Jesus's words here, and he gives us another illustration from the legal realm as we continue on with verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So Jesus is telling us the story of these men who they're heading to court and they need to settle this medal now before they are in the courtroom. It's going to take humility. It's going to be costly, but it's going to be so worth it because one of them may find themselves in prison and not able to get out until they pay the last penny. So in context here, these verses are just emphasizing the importance of being in right relationship with others. Reconciliation should be a matter of urgency to us. And we know the longer we put it off, the harder it gets. Do it now. Jesus is telling us the consequences build when we don't. They cause issues in our spiritual walk and in our relationship with others. Many relationships are sadly destroyed because we let bitterness or gossip take over when if we just took the time to communicate and work through things, the relationship could have been saved. Avoidance is not reconciliation. Note here, okay, Jesus is telling us here too that if our brother has something against us, we are to seek reconciliation. So it's not just us having an issue, but when we know that someone has an issue with us, like we know that there's an issue, right? We need to seek to make it right. If they're not coming first, you go, you go do it. These are hard things in the moment, but when we address them, we are so glad we did because we have a clear conscience before the Lord and others. Note again, I've got a lot of notes here. This does not mean that you share every ill thought you have about the other person. This is going to cause more damage. You need to address what has been out in the open and those thoughts that you had in your own heart and mind that you didn't share outwardly, right? Deal with those just before the Lord. Um, You don't need to add fuel to the fire or cause more damage than has already been done. Keep your secret thoughts before you and the Lord. I'm hoping I kind of explain that clearly, but I think you get what I'm saying here. I think you get that. So when we make amends rightly and quickly, we will avoid further consequences that could be hefty ones. So I'm starting to close it here. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Hanging in with me here. You guys are doing great. So just because someone sins against you, it doesn't mean it's okay or justified for you to sin against them. I tell you this all the time. It is never okay to sin against sin. We are not going to be perfect in this life. Sin affects our everyday interactions with others. And I'm so thankful our Lord has given us clear principles in his word with how to deal with it and how to make it right. 
And by God's good grace, we will continue to be sensitive in how we react and speak to and about others and how we think about them. We need to remember what a high price Jesus places in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He even recommends that we leave worship to make things right with them. So my hope is that if we have relationships in our lives that we need to make right, that we're going to do it today. Come before the Lord and confess any areas of offense you have with a fellow believer and seek their forgiveness. Maybe it's your husband or even an adult child or your parents. Maybe it's somebody in your church family. Don't wait until tomorrow. Take care of it today. You do what you can. You can't control the response of another person, but you can control your response and actions. Romans 12, 18 reminds us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live, live peaceably with all. Our Kent Hughes says, if we are guilty of offending another, may we covenant with God to deal with it soon. Some of us have been spiritually dry because we have been offensive to others. May we covenant now to confess our sins to those whom we have offended. Then the heavens will open again. The moment we truly decide to deal with the problem, God's recreating forces go to work within us. Let us live as truly righteous people so that others will see the radical righteousness of Christ and be drawn to him, end quote there. So my reminder we need is we cannot do this without a changed heart, without coming back to the reminder of our spiritual poverty before the Lord, to exceed the righteousness Jesus describes that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees can only come about when we are obeying God from a changed heart. We have been transformed by his grace. If you are in Christ, right? We have been, you've repented and put your, of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You have now been transformed by his grace. And now in Christ, you have the spiritual resources to carry out his command and his commands are not burdensome. So may we be those who are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven and that we may let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven because Jesus truly is enough always. I'm so thankful for your time today, friend. And as always, the show notes will have all the verses, quotes, um, resources listed and always, if the podcast has been a blessing to you, please share it with a friend or two. That's just the sweetest thing you could do for me. I'd be so thankful and leave a rating or review wherever you listen. And if you have a moment to do that, it helps other um, Christian women find it too. So I'm super thankful for that. And also friends, check out thankfulhomemaker.com. That's my little home on the web. There's other resources there, blog posts. That's where you find all the podcast episodes and show notes. I have a free printable library you can sign up for. There's online courses you can find there. Thankful Homemaker gear if you'd like that mug or sweatshirt. And then you can check out our new membership site, which has just been a joy and delight. So I'm so grateful for you, my friend. And I do pray you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.